You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I don't know if you saw this story in the Seattle Times last week. True story. Apparently, uh, there was an error in the Missouri Department of Corrections office there in St. Louis, Missouri. Somebody was processing inmates who were soon to be released from jail, and a name popped up on a computer screen, and it was the name Mike Anderson. Mike Anderson had been convicted of armed robbery at Burger King in the night back in 2000, convicted and sentenced to 13 years in prison. So now, with his name on this computer screen, it was time to initiate the process of getting Mike released back into society. There was only one problem. They couldn't find Mike in the system. As it turns out, so the clerical error, Mike had never been actually summoned to show up for jail. <laughs> he had been on bail. There was a bond uh, while he was in trial. And uh, the judges said, they'll call you. And you know what? They never called. <laughs> and I what would you do? Well, what Mike did is he just kept on living. He carried on. He didn't run, didn't, didn't, didn't avoid the Department of Corrections. He just started correcting his life as best he could. He tried to fix what was broken. He tried to become a new person, which is what you and I might try to do, too, if we had a record like that, he, because he feared he couldn't possibly afford to be the old person, the person he thought maybe I, I might really be on the inside. So he went back to school. He became a master carpenter. He started three businesses. He fell in love. He got married. He had two children. He started helping them correct, you know, homework at night. He started coaching the football game, and he volunteered at church, Mike Anderson. But even as he carried on, he carried a secret. It was a secret about who he really was because he didn't show that, and he didn't talk about his past. He didn't even tell his new wife. But he had this fear that someday it would catch up to him. This is what he said. I felt like I had something hanging over my head every day for 13 years. Every day. Every day. It was always in the back of my mind. Is that day coming any day now? So, I like this. He said, you get pulled over for a traffic ticket. You run a red light, run a stop sign, or you didn't come to a complete stop. And and they're uh, they're running your information. And your heart's beating fast. Like, man, are they going to know? And they come back, hey, uh, Mr. Anderson, get your taillight fixed. (laughs) Get your tags renewed. And that was it. And I was like, wow, (laughs) live to fight another day. Well, finally, the, the day that Mike feared would arrive did arrive. It arrived this summer and arrived without any warning. No one called him on the phone. But one morning at 6 a.m., his secret banged on the door in the form of a small army. They sent a SWAT team with helmets, full body armor, shields, and submachine guns, spotlights on the door. Hut, 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 Mr. Anderson. And he said, I stood there in the doorway, blinded by the light. I was stunned. And all I could say is, you got the wrong person. <laughs> And then they looked back at me, and they said, no, 
You're the right person. And they put handcuffs on Mike Anderson, and they took him away to begin a 13-year sentence with a two, his wife was on a business trip. He had a two-year-old daughter in the bedroom asleep. They took Mike Anderson away, and it wasn't the Mike Anderson he wanted to be, and it wasn't the Mike Anderson he wanted everybody else to see. It was the Mike Anderson that he feared he might really be. Well, I think the story could very well have gone the same way with Peter. If it had not been for what Peter calls his great mercy. Think with me for a minute about Peter's life. Uh, If you know the story, there's a question that hangs over Peter, the apostle, for the the beginning of the story. And And the question is, who am I really? Am I the person I want to be? Am I the person that everybody else thinks I am when they look at me from the outside? Or, or am I the person I fear I might really be? Who am I? So you, you can tell that that's the story of Peter's life because Peter's the one that got a new name from Jesus. He's the only one of the 12 followers that Jesus gave him a new name. So he was, he was born Simon. And yet one day, Jesus looked into Simon's eyes, and he said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And I tell you, you are Peter. Now, Peter means rock. Peter, Petros, rock. So Jesus says, I I tell you, you are Peter, rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, that's an affirmation. And that had to have felt really good, don't you think? I mean, from Jesus. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, Peter might have said, yeah, I knew that. You know, <laughs> of course, I'm a rock. Because, you know, that's who, that's who Peter wants to be. He wants to be silent. He wants to be strong. He wants to be reliable. But he's not so sure <laughs> he really is all those things. And he, he starts to um, act like a rock. He starts to project rock to other people and He starts to even, on some days, good days, believe he might really be rock, just like Jesus said. But it's hard to be a rock. I mean, that's a lot to carry around, isn't it? And and he stumbles. And if you know the story, uh, we know that he'll get it wrong at Caesarea Philippi, right there. He'll get it wrong on the Mount of Transfiguration. He'll get it wrong on the Sea of Galilee. He'll get it wrong in the Upper Room, and he'll get it wrong in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I imagine that for Peter, there's there's a secret that begins to develop, to germinate, to take root in his heart. The secret that maybe I'm not who I'm really cracked up to be. And I imagine it at first comes to in the form of a question. I mean, mean, when he gets it wrong, and, and then he asks himself, am I really a rock? And then I think the question probably with time and more unfortunate experiences begins to settle in in the form of a belief, not a question anymore, but a belief in which he says to himself now with unfortunate conviction, you know what? I'm not a rock. I'm a fake trying to look like a rock. But I can't afford to let anyone know. So he carries this secret with him. And, And then one day, the day that he most fears finally comes. And, and, and his secret comes knocking on his door in the form of a rooster. 
It's the day he gets rock wrong in the temple courtyard in Jerusalem. It's the chill of the morning. It's still dark, and he's huddling around a fire, not so much for warmth but for protection with complete strangers because he's watching as they take his friend Jesus, drag him off to be tortured and destroyed. This is the end of the story. Peter knows it. And as he sits there, all he can think about is what he had said to Jesus the night before, just swirling through his mind again and again, the words that he said when he was face to face with Jesus. He said, Jesus, I'll never fall away. I will die with you. I will not deny you. I will never, I will never. And like any promise that any and every human heart has ever made or tried to keep, it echoes with judgment through the chambers of his heart as he looks into the eyes now of a Hebrew slave girl and says to her, I don't know the man. He's talking about Jesus. I don't know him. This is his friend. And then he takes an oath and puts himself under a curse and says, for the third time, I tell you, I never knew him. And then the rooster crows, and Jesus dies, and that's the end of the rock. Unless Peter lives in a world with great mercy. Without great mercy, I want to suggest to you this morning, if you let me dare, that that's the way the story goes for all of us. I had a friend who woke up one morning and could not get out of bed. And he told me later, George, I woke up in midlife and realized that the person I am is not okay. I spent my whole life trying to be someone the world around me would respect. I spent my life trying to be somebody. I spent my whole life performing for external audiences. And no matter how much I try, I can't please them anyway. I don't measure up. My wife doesn't like me. I don't like me. At the core, I'm not who I want to be, and I don't even know who I am. And then he said to me, if that doesn't drive you to become an alcoholic, I don't know what would. And it did. A few years ago, a woman named Madeline Levine wrote a book. She's a Marin County psychologist. The book is called The Price of Privilege. And in it, she describes what she calls a current epidemic of depression, anxiety disorders, and substance abuse. Among 12 to 18-year-olds who are being raised by parents in affluent, well-educated homes. And the reason this is happening, she tells us, both out of her practices with adolescents and the research, is that these parents and the surrounding culture are putting so many expectations on these kids. They are trying their level best, and they're doing pretty well to uphold all these expectations, but on the inside, they're dying. They're hiding the core of their being because they're trying to be who everybody else insists that they really should be. And it's so painful. So painful. And then Dr. Levine points her finger at the reader, and she says, you know what? It's not just them. 
It's us. That just happens to be her uh, sample pool. She says, all of us are hurting at our core. All of us are hiding in our shame. And so, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? What do you do with your shame? What do you do with that sense that you're not the person that you really think you should be? We all have secrets, all of us. I don't know what your secret is, but I know some of our secrets include that we cheated on a test, that we struggle with mental illness, that we have a broken marriage, that we've lied, that we've had an unplanned pregnancy, that we've suffered an embarrassing firing, that we've been the victims of debilitating abuse, that we've committed a crime, or that we're carrying around an addiction. I don't know what the secret is, but I do know that you carry a secret, and without mercy, we'll only do one thing. We'll hide it. We have to hide it. We don't dare face our fears and our frustrations and our failures because we can't afford to. Shame is the deep belief in our core that you and I are fundamentally unacceptable, that we're unlovable. And shame will hang over your life. Shame will condemn you with recriminations telling you, you got to fix this. You've got to fix what you cannot fix. And it will become, if you let it, an identity. Pete Wilson says your past is not your past if it's still impacting your present. But for Peter, for Peter, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that puts an end to all of this once and for all, for Peter and for you and for me, listen to what he writes again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's in worship. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This Sunday changes everything. What else would allow Peter to run toward the empty tomb? I mean, what would allow Peter to do the opposite of what all of us would would want to do, at least, and that's to flee, to run away, to hide, to avoid condemnation and judgment. But Peter doesn't. He turns and he runs towards the empty tomb. What would allow Peter to jump out of the boat, out of his shame, and dog paddle, grown man, back to the beach because he's seen that it's Jesus who's appeared, now resurrected on the beach? What would allow Peter to stand toe-to-toe with the man he betrayed and to look into his eyes and say with full conviction three times, I love you. It's his great mercy. It's God's great mercy. In this moment, Peter realizes that Jesus has not come back from the dead to condemn or to judge or to say, I told you so, or you're not who you said you were, or you're not who you promised to be, or I know that you're a fake, or you need to fix this, or I'm not going to come back again. He he says none of those things. Jesus doesn't come back to the dead for fix anything. He comes back from the dead to embrace everyone in his love. And now Peter realizes he's in the middle of a love story. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. God just wants you in relationship with him. He just wants you to know how much he loves you. That he loves all of you. 
because that's all that you are, even the parts of you you don't even dare look at for fear of shame. He loves it all. He loves you all. He knows you completely and loves you without condition. And when Peter gets this, that first Resurrection Sunday, then he knows what the rock is. The rock isn't anything he is supposed to do or failed to do. The rock is this one conviction that we can always find great mercy in in Jesus Christ. That's the rock. That's it. Now he can be Peter. Not because of anything he's done. We don't call him St. Peter because of the stuff he does. We call him St. Peter because he has learned by the resurrection to place his trust, his confidence in the great mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That's the rock. Karl Barth, when he's reflecting this, the great Swiss theologian, he's reflecting on the resurrection. and He writes this, that, that those who believe know that our legal status as a sinner is rejected in every form by God. Listen to this. Man is no longer seriously regarded by God as a sinner. Whatever he may be, whatever there is... Wait, let me, let me flip this around and address it to you if you'll let me do that. Whatever you may be, whatever... Whatever there is to be said about you, whatever you have to reproach yourself with, God no longer takes you seriously as a sinner. I mean, that's good news. And, and, you know, the problem with us is we take sin more seriously than we take the Savior. By his great mercy, Peter writes, by his great mercy... And Peter understands that this mercy is not just for him. It's for you. It's for me. That's why he wrote the letter. To communicate that Jesus has decided, that God and Jesus has decided to stand in our place, in our past, in our shame, so that even though we continue to sin and live and look as like we're sinners, we can now stand in his place of righteousness, in his past of complete goodness, and in his future of hope and glory. That's why he writes in, his, in chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says, He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body, our sins in his body on the cross, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And that's why he writes in the next chapter, 318, he says, For Christ also suffered for sins once, that's the cross, for all, that's us, the righteous, that's him, for the unrighteous, that's us, in order to bring you to God, he says. And I believe God has you and me here this morning to bring us to him. That's why we're here this morning. And so what will you do with that? What will you do with that this Easter Sunday? You can do nothing with it if you want. That's your choice. You can continue to try to face into the shame, the fear and the frustration and the failure, and you can keep hiding. Or you could stand before the one by faith who knows everything about you and all that you are, your past and your future, and loves you completely without condition. You can surrender to him. You can run with Peter to the empty tomb and place your faith in the mercy of God shown to you in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's your decision. But I know what God wants you to do. And there's one other decision I'd like to invite you to this, this morning, and that is this. I want to invite you to help make this church a community of people 
who have no rock except the mercy of Jesus Christ. You see how important that is? The world around us puts confidence in so many things, in almost everything. But the one mark of the follower of Jesus Christ and the people of God is that they have learned to place their confidence entirely in the mercy, the great mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And that changes everything, how we relate to one another and how we relate to our neighbors. And I want to invite you to join me in that. Can't do it without your help. Now, as I close, I want to engage you in a little imaginative exercise. Would you um, follow me back to the front door of Mike Anderson? And if it helps you, close your eyes and just imagine this. Imagine that an hour before that SWAT team was to arrive. There was another knock at the door, not the loud one, but a a quiet one. And it's just loud enough to stir Mr. Anderson out of bed, and he goes to the front door, and he opens the door just a little bit and peers out into the pre-dawn darkness of that morning. And he sees a face, a face he recognizes but hasn't seen for 13 years. It's the face of the night manager at the Burger King that he had robbed. And before he can pull the door closed, the night manager says, wait, Mr. Anderson, let me just say, I know this is bizarre, but um, there's been a clerical error. And the summons to prison that you were supposed to receive somehow was sent to my house 13 years ago. And when I received that, it made me think about the crime. And it was very painful for me, Mr. Anderson. You have to understand. But when I, when I thought about you, and I thought about who you really were, I knew that this was not your best you. I knew that this was not your real you. And I did not want you to have to live with shame and in fear of judgment. And so I did, I did a irresponsible, I did a wildly crazy thing, Mr. Anderson. And that is that I took that summons and I went to prison for you. And I've just gotten out tonight. I have served your 13 years. And I'm coming to you now because I know that in an hour the police will be here and you have a choice to make. You can let me into your home right now, Mr. Anderson. And I will stand beside you. And when they arrive, we can tell them together that the sentence has been served. That the penalty has been paid. And that the guilt and the shame are both gone. Friends, that's what Jesus Christ is offering you this morning. Would you speak to him with me in prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for coming to us. Thank you for coming for us. Having removed the sentence of death that was written against us, having removed it in your own death, And surviving that death and our sin to embrace us in your love and unconditional mercy. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we want to take a moment right now and pray for the people around us. and Pray that you will be calling people into new faith in Jesus Christ. For those of us who have never placed our confidence, our trust, in your promise that our sins have been wiped away. And that we've been healed by his death. Lord, we pray that they will use this prayer right now to say to you, thank you. I receive it. I trust in it. And I belong to you. We know that as we do that, you give us a living hope for this world 
and for the next. We also pause to pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll make us people who share mercy with ourselves, with each other, and with this world for which you died and over which you now rule in everlasting life. Pray it in your name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.